While veteran theatergoers may have seen him on stage during the original Broadway run of Grease or remember his charming turn in the musical Tintypes, today's guest is one of the most versatile and successful directors of the past three decades, having staged the original productions of Sister Mary Ignatius, Lend Me a Tenor, The Marriage of Bette and Boo, Smokey Joe's Cafe, Six Degrees of Separation, and Assassins, as well as notable revivals of The House of Blue Leaves, Anything Goes, Guys and Dolls, and A Funny Thing Happened the way to the forum. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased that 30 years after I first saw him on stage, I get to meet and talk with Jerry Zachs. It's good to see you, Howard. Welcome. Uh, I want to start with a show that I didn't include on that list because your credit on it doesn't quite fit uh, my praise, which is Adam's Family. Uh-huh. You have the title of creative consultant, I believe, mm-hmm. on Adam's Family. Yeah. Um, certainly, it's been chronicled in the press that the show was done out of town. There are other individuals credited as the directors. What did you do when you came into it and how much flexibility did you have to change it or how much did you have to stay with the template that was already there? Uh, I had to stay with the template that was already there to the extent that I wanted to use the set and the f- it, and the fundamental story, uh, the basic story I didn't want to stray from because we didn't have anything that we thought could work better. It was the execution, the fundamental story of the two young people uh, trying to get together, trying to get their parents to get together. That mission uh, remained intact, although we did much – I supervised much rewriting. Um, Creative consultant, that's an interesting title, isn't it? Uh, It basically means director, Uh, although uh, the two gentlemen who were credited uh, as being directors – uh, had worked tremendously hard and long uh, to get the show to where it uh, was in Chicago. In fact, one of the two gentlemen uh, was the set designer and continued on, um, uh, Julian Crouch. Um, so having said that, what did I do? Uh, it was a chaotic situation. Uh, and by that I mean there was no one person telling everyone what to do in an organized and structured way. Uh, there was a chaos. That is to say, uh, writers were giving notes to actors. Actors were having to fend for themselves. Uh, no one was editing the composer. Uh, I mean, there was a, it was not a, 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 not a situation uh, that y- yields uh, good theater, generally. Well, Crouch and McDermott had developed their own pieces before and sort of directed, designed, but but even generated the material. So working in a commercial theater environment was clearly a new model for them. Absolutely. Uh, they're tremendously talented fellows, and their work speaks for itself. Uh, I think coming into the situation you described was new and different. I think uh, a lot of the improvisational techniques that they may use with their own company didn't really... Uh, didn't really result in a a happy staging, nor were the actors feeling secure. As a result, they were doing whatever they need. They were saving their asses, if you don't, if you pardon the expression. And that's, uh, how how actors do that is very subtle and fascinating, you know. Uh, They generally don't connect with each other. 
because they're, it's hard for them to forget about themselves long enough to really get their attention onto the other guy on stage. That translates into a lot of mugging, a lot of playing out front, a kind of operatic uh, way of performing, and, uh, and uh, it didn't feel like a team. The actors did not feel like a fantastic team. So what did I do? I, I got in and uh, uh, we threw out about four songs, I think, perhaps five. Andrew Lippa, the, old, the, the opening number was discarded and a new one was written. We spent a lot of time coming up with what that should be. And there were several other numbers in the show which didn't really move the story forward, nor were they particularly thrilling. So we, 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 we made that adjustment. Uh, Marshall Brickman and Rick Ellis and I, the book writers, uh, spent countless sessions hammering away at the book. Uh, the structure of it was leaky. It was leaking and sinking. Uh, there were holes in it. Uh, the, the sequence of events, the rate of new ideas was... Uh, not particularly good. In fact, I attended a preview in Chicago and I gauged the show by the couple, the effect of the show by the couple in front of me, a young couple out on a date. Uh, whenever they were paying attention to the show, the show was good. Whenever they were making out in front of me, the show had sagged. So, you know, <laughs> you could use their attention. And, and, and it wasn't all that far off, actually. Um, so, much rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Go ahead. Well, well let me ask you. I've certainly heard from from other artists who join productions that are underway, be it a director, be it an actor, that sometimes you come in and you have to find your way in. Clearly with the actors, it sounds like they were ready for you. Yeah. You were, you were um, not perceived as a threat and indeed, at least in the major roles, you didn't go in and recast and throw, no. throw people out. No. Um, did you have to convince Rick and Marshall about changing the focus and honing the show because or, – or were they ready for that too? They were definitely ready for it. Uh, they're great guys and they're very talented writers. Uh, the only slight problem was that each draft that they submitted, I think they – figured was the final one. <laughs> and God bless them, uh, I, I, that was not the case. I, I think, you know, uh, uh, finding my way, it was not necessary um, into the show. I, 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 I devised a way to get everyone's attention in the best possible way, the actors and, and the designer and, uh, and the writers. Um, so, we, 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 yeah, that, that was... Well, it's interesting. You you commented when I said creative consultant, and it, it's the credit that you have, and there are all sure. sorts of con contractual things that play Correct. into that. And I don't want to go into it particularly, but you know there used to be this term show doctor. There were people who would go in on existing shows and do fixes. Um, you've had a few occasions where you've gone into shows, ultimately, and, and taken over shows that were underway. That is somewhat the case. Of when we finally see Sister Act. Sister Act has been produced. Right. It was put together. The team was assembled by someone else. Um, obviously, the production's up and running in London. Now you're taking over Sister Act. It will be a new production here in the U.S. How much of what's in London would you see yourself keeping? Or are you really going to conceive a wholly new production? No, it's it's very much going to feel like the London production to the extent that I'm not touching the score. And so much of the feel of the show is informed by the, the, the score. Alan Menken and Glenn Slater have come up with some great music for the show. Uh, 
I uh, and I'm not talking about personnel now. I, I, I uh, the show needs a rewrite. The book is um, not artfully done. You know, uh, uh, it's not funny enough. The attempts at humor were superficial and and usually about a character's idiosyncrasies or eccentricities. You know, this is the guy that always drools. This is the one that always speaks too loudly. This is, you know, and that's boring because basically the person is the same from the beginning to the end unless something happens to them, you know, unless there are events. So I have to provide, the writers have to provide more events in the show that happen on stage in front of the audience's eyes. So, for example, in, in the current draft, uh, the Monsignor comes in to inform the Mother Superior that the church, uh, the Archdiocese is going to close the church in 30 days. And her response is, I know, I know, because she's preoccupied. And she, that's a dreadful choice because it's anti-dramatic. If I come in, if the Monsignor comes in and says the Archdiocese has, has chosen to, can't, to, to close the doors of the church in 30 days and the Mother Superior doesn't know it, then when she's told that, you hear that silence? It's a wonderful thing. She doesn't know what to say. And she says, what? what m- m- why, m- Father, wh- what do you mean? Uh, you know, her whole life is now being threatened, and we're seeing her hear about it on stage. Hmm. That's just one of a thousand of little moments like that that will end up being fixed and improved, I hope, between now and uh, when we open in New York. Uh, you know, look, starting with um, uh, Tap Dance Kid, which I was, invi- I was invited to do the national tour by Norman Rothstein, a wonderful, wonderful uh, general manager. Um, and uh, I found it and have found it through other productions I have come in on. There's something fun. Fun is a very dangerous word, but it is fun. And, and it's to sit there and watch a show that isn't working and turn to my assistant and say, this, this, that. The opening's weak. It's a non-event. Uh, I, I don't know who I'm supposed to look at here. The story just stopped. That's clearly an attempt at humor that failed, etc., etc., etc. The whole tone, you know, the whole tone of the original uh, Tap Dance Kid was a wonderful production, wonderful, but it was operatic. And I wanted to change that tone. Again, operatic, overacted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh on Little Shop of Horrors and Smoky Joe's. Each, each, each case is, a, is, is, is obviously unique. And, it, you know, each comes with its own set of problems. But I find it very satisfying to identify the problems and go about fixing them. Uh, it's without good material... You know, it's garnished. Well, it sounds sounds like you're a dramaturg. Yes, that's part of my job. That's part of my job. Absolutely. It's why, you know, I very often hear and read what dramaturgs have to say. Sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's term paper, (laughs) you know, which means it's it's unhelpful in the staging of the piece. But yes, I, I, I address whether a scene is a scene, whether there is an event, what's the event, how do, we tra- how do we make the transition from that event to this event in an exciting and dramatic way. Someone said that doing musicals and plays, but musicals, and I, I don't know, it might have been Jerry Robbins, it might have been someone else, I hate to misattribute it, but uh, you know, it's about the rate of new ideas, the rate of new ideas that are happening on stage, and there must be, the rate of new ideas must be considerable enough to keep the audience engaged. And by that, I mean the example I just uh, mentioned to you about the Mother Superior finding out that the, that the convent is in jeopardy. That's a new idea. 
Now we need another new idea, and the, new, the next new idea will be the transition from uh, the, the Mother Superior's prayer when she says, please, please, God, send us our salvation. And we go, boom, to Dolores Van Cartier singing, in a, you know, in a, a total different dynamic, a huge change, and a dramatic one, you know. Also, well, there's so much to it. You know, I, I, yes, I want to make sure that the script is written in a way so that we fall in love with the characters. Can we jump yes. back to Adam's family? Yes. And can you give me an example of something that fundamentally needed to be changed? Well, uh, the opening number was um, – the opening number took place in the graveyard and it was um, ostensibly about the coming of age for Wednesday, her, a ceremony involving her going from – girl to young woman, sort of a bar mitzvah, if you will, you know, and uh, uh, and it was called the Clandango, and that was the name of a dance that they did as part of the celebration, uh, and she entered in from, they opened the coffin, and she entered, and there were all sorts of tombstones moving around in the background, all of which made it impossible to know who to look at. Hmm. I happen to like when the entire audience is looking at the same place at the same time, hmm. and I make sure that they do that. You know, uh, I just and the, I, the actors need to help me with that. But the, the point is, that it was a, it was a number about a dance, a, a, a strange dance. It was energetic, but I didn't get to learn anything about anyone except that the show was probably about Wednesday, at the end of the opening number. And we ended up with a number called When You're in Adams, which is also – it's the, every once a year they gather in uh, 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 the cemetery to celebrate of what it is to be in Adams. Hmm. And as part of that – and this was a big problem in Chicago. The chorus, they need, we needed a chorus. So who are the chorus? Well, they, na- they called them the ancestors. In the Chicago production, the ancestors would come and go. They were dressed as sort of swashbuckling period – Persona, you didn't couldn't see their faces. We, you didn't know why they were there or who they were, really, except that they were ancestors. So what I asked the writers to come up with is, and the composer, come up with a number in which we can introduce the ancestors, have them emerge from their crypt, because as part of the ceremony, the Adamses conjure up the ghosts of Adam's past to come and dance with them and celebrate what it is. <laughs> And what happens is once the ancestors come out and dance with the Adams family and celebrates, their impulse is to go back in the crypt where they can go to sleep for another thousand years and rest. But it's become clear that there is a love story that is starting to happen that is, that is in jeopardy. These two kids getting together is in jeopardy. Fester is the one who works to make sure that they connect. And what he says simply is, I need your help. And you're not going back into the crypt until love triumphs, basically. Hmm. And now we've got a chorus who is stuck on stage. They have a purpose, you know. They have a point of view. And, uh, and they're, all, they're all of a common palette. They're all bleached out a little bit, but they have individual characteristics that suggest that this was uh, so-and-so Adams and this was uh, Senor Adams and this was, you know without working too hard to establish that. So that's a little example of how we – that's the springboard into the evening. Well, you know, so it's I, I obsess over openings. Well, there's yeah. many a show that has been made by its opening number and how you kick the evening off. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about how the life of Jerry Zaks kicked off. <sighs> I was surprised to find that you were born in Stuttgart yes. and emigrated here 
as a child. You were two years old, but immediately post-war. So your parents, having been in Germany, had come through a difficult period. Um, was, Was theater and light entertainment part of your life growing up? Absolutely not. My mother survived Auschwitz. My father survived by changing his identity and managing to stay one step ahead of the Nazis. And they were reunited after the war, and I was born. Hmm. And we came here. No, we had a my, – my parents had a rough life. Um, well, they came here with some money in their pocket but lost it very quickly because they didn't know the language and were taken in. And my father was a kosher butcher in Patterson, New Jersey. No, I had no interest. In fact, um, uh, my one attempt to audition for a high school play – uh, resulted in me choking in the middle of a song. I mean, my literally, literally so choked. nervous uh, that my gorge rose up and stopped the sound. And I pretended that I had just forgotten the line, but I knew how terrified I was and had nothing to do with it. That was my beginning. So <laughs> we're going to probably use more Yiddish in this interview yes. than any other one I've done. Your parents <laughs> must have been quelling because you got into Dartmouth. Yes. Uh, you know, yes. not a notable bastion of, of Jewish learning at the time necessarily. <laughs> um, you know, here you are. You're on your way. You're yes. you're truly in the American dream in Ivy League school. Yes. Um, but that's where you went astray. That's correct. I, I think I really broke their hearts in the beginning. Uh, you put your finger right on it, Howard. I mean, you know, I was going to a great school to be a professional, as my parents would say. Uh and I fell in love with the theater. I fell in love with the theater as an audience member, not as a young kid who memorized Broadway show tunes and performed them in his basement. Uh, I performed old rock and roll songs, you know, just very secretively. But, but no, I saw a production of Wonderful Town uh, that I – and I don't think I'd seen it before. This is at before. school, this not is a at professional school. production. No, no, this is at Winter Carnival in 1964, I think. And um, God – few years ago, huh? and I, I just was knocked out by the light, the sound, the music, the, the, the humor. The, the entire experience was absolutely ecstatic for me. Now, people hmm. have said that before, you know, but uh, I will tell you that at that moment, my life changed, and, and I, 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 I fell in love, and I've stayed in love with that, the theater, uh, to, right up till today, you know? You went to graduate school yes. at Smith. Yes. Um, for theater, was it for acting? Yes. So yes. I felt like, you know what I did was I, I uh, as soon as I decided this is something I wanted. Some, at the same time as I when I, as I at the same time that I saw a wonderful town. Uh, my a fraternity brother asked me if I wanted to act in the fraternity play contest for no reason. I said, "Why would you ask me that?" He said, "You're funny. You're amusing. Come on, give it a try." I did. We won. The, the competition, and I was hooked uh, between seeing Wonderful Town and experiencing some acting in this play contest. I then went out for all the parts I could get um, and uh, got a lot of them, uh, loved acting so much and uh, loved being on stage and all that that meant. And then uh, up, up until late in my senior year, I even applied to law schools. I mean, I was – yes, I, w- I, went to, I, I went to this very reluctantly and fearfully because my parents didn't care for it. I knew it was risky, but it's a terrible way to make a living. You ab- need something to fall back on. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know the number of people who want to do this. Please. So anyway, I, I yeah, I went to Smith. I went to Smith to train as an actor, and also because I knew I wasn't good enough to to, to pursue a career as an actor in New York. I was very overweight, very overweight, 
And uh, I realized that I needed to do something about that. So I lost about 45 pounds at Smith, started dancing as much as I could and acting scenes as much as I could for two years. It's where I met Kurt Dempster, the founder of the Ensemble Studio Theater, who became my acting teacher in New York. And uh, it's where I gave myself some ammunition to come into New York, and that's what I did. So when you came to New York, did you have the classic struggle for years looking for parts? Because come 1974, you're a repla- uh, somewhere – I should say somewhere in the 70s, you're a replacement on Broadway right. in the original company of Greece. Right. Um, did that take a long time to get there? Uh, it didn't feel like a long time. Uh, 69, I started acting in the fall of 69 in New York. I got the first audition I went out for. It was for the part of Young Tom Edison in Theater Works, then known as Performing Arts Repertory Theater, production of Young Tom Edison. Mm-hmm. So I got a lead in a musical <laughs> that toured all over the states, in, in, uh, you know, and I couldn't have been happier. Hmm. Uh, they enjoyed my performance, and so the producers, uh, Jay Harnick, Charlie Hull, asked me to do more shows. Young Abe Lincoln, Young Tom Jefferson, Young Ben Franklin. All the time I was learning. The you were the young, famous guy you to know. call. And in Young, young they Abe were Lincoln, all, they were all the same size. And <laughs> That's right, except, except for Young Abe Lincoln where I played a sidekick. Yeah. But the point is I got great, a, a great training in learning music, singing on stage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I did some summer stock uh, musicals and the, 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 the touring 10 circuit. You know, I played opposite Zero Mostel in, in, uh, in Fiddler on the Roof in one of those and opposite Theodore Bickell in the Rothschilds. And mm-hmm. I, was, I, I was working. I did lots of commercials, et cetera, et cetera. And you mentioned Kurt Dempster already, but yes. I read that you were involved as a founding member of Ensemble Studio Theater. Where was that in the chronology of this? In, in about, about 1970, I guess, 71 or so, uh, we, a group of us who had worked with Kurt as a, when he came to Smith as a guest director, uh, we continued to work with him as our acting teacher, and one day he came in and told us that he was starting a new theater on 52nd Street, and could we all go over and help paint and scrape? And that's what we did. It was a godforsaken space in a big warehouse building, you know, and that became my home base. Hmm. You, know. you continued to act through the yes. 70s. I mentioned Tin Types, which was the first opportunity I had to see yes. you on stage. Um, but it was through EST that you got your first directing opportunity. Correct. Is that the case? Yes. Yes. Uh, shall I tell you about that? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, a fellow member, a fellow acting member uh, came up to me one day and said he had read a play uh, that he wanted to play the lead in and that he thought I should direct. <laughs> so I said, well, OK. And it was all friends. And we proceeded to do a, an unofficial production of The Soft Touch by Neil Cuthbert. And um, which was a failed Broadway play correct. from ten years earlier. Correct, but it was it made me laugh out loud, and I discovered that I got great joy out of orchestrating the life between between any two given actors at any moment in a, in a play. I loved it. I loved it. There, you know, finding the music and the rhythm and the intentions and and playing with the actors. So that's what I did. And for the first time, I stood in the back of the theater. And heard the sounds of laughter like you couldn't believe. It was a wonderful thing. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. I'm enjoy- I enjoyed this very much, but I'm an actor. I'm an actor. And then I read in a, I took, I, I found a, in a stack of submitted one-act plays for the One-Act Play Festival, um, a copy of Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All for You 
by Christopher Dureg. Now, I had acted for Chris the previous year in a production of History of the American Film at Hartford Stage, in fact, and at the O'Neill. And uh, uh, I called him up and said, listen, I've just started directing. Would you let me direct this? What I really did was after I read the play, I wanted to go back and steal all the copies and take them away because I fell in love with it so much. I didn't do that. But uh, he thought about it and spoke with his agent, Helen Merrill, a wonderful woman, and he said yes. He said yes. <laughs> I've got to ask, what did a Jewish boy know from nuns? You know, not much. But I did know about, you know, I did know about people who are so committed to their faith that they would kill to defend it. Mm-hmm. That, I could, that I could identify with. The details about the, the Catholic stuff, Chris was very helpful, you know, <laughs> no, to expl- you know, in explaining everything that I didn't understand. But, you know, this was a great character he wrote in his inimitable way. And with, with Elizabeth Franz, you know, who is just the best, uh, we put together an evening that, uh, that worked very well, you know. Was there a moment where you said, I'm not going to act anymore, I'm going to be a director? Yeah, there was, but I can't remember exactly when it happened. I do remember for the longest time that I considered myself an actor whose avocation was directing. I think with the success of Sister Mary and the fact that it had, a, I think, a three-year runoff Broadway I, and the fact that people were calling me and asking me to consider doing plays when as an actor you have to go in there and grovel and audition and you have no control. I, 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 I began then to make the shift, but I let go of acting reluctantly you know, because I enjoyed it. You say that people started calling you. Certainly the, the, the Playwrights Horizons and then the, the commercial run of Sister Mary Ignatius was 81. I saw you both acting and directing in Philadelphia for the now-defunct Philadelphia Drama right, Guild in right, 82. Right. Uh, I saw you in Tally's Folly. Right. I saw the, your production of Gemini. I saw wow. your production of Shirley Larrow's The Contest. Wow. Um, and certainly it wasn't, at least it seemed, that suddenly all the theaters in New York were calling Jerry Zachs saying, come direct. You're down in Philadelphia. Yeah, I was, you know, I was learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was... Uh, I was, the, and I'm still learning. It's a, you know, it's a very humbling craft, this directing business. But uh, no, and and I think I, I think Tally's Folly was the last. I think was the last substantial acting I did, two character play. And you know, if she wasn't talking, then I better be talking. It was, right. it was, it was exhilarating, but it was also terrifying. I mean, the fear of forgetting lines. Let me tell you, I know you. It's it's, it's something that people don't talk about much. I didn't have a problem with it. But it would drive me crazy because there's no all. Look, I went up on the name of my car in Greece once. I had done it for six hundred. Greece Lightning. Yes, <laughs> I, my line was. Uh, somebody said you're getting a car, and I said, Yeah, I'm getting a car. They said, What kind? And my line was, I don't know what kind yet, moron. But I got the name all picked out. Greased Lightning. Well, I said I got the name all picked out. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> crickets. Nothing. Crickets. It was, and it, my, you know, it's not good for the heart. Anyway. Hmm. <laughs> so. Obviously, you had the early relationship with Chris Durang. You also did Baby with the Bathwater. Yes, yes, that's right. I did Beyond Therapy, Baby with the Bathwater, The Marriage of Bet and Boo. Uh, Beyond, did I say Beyond Therapy? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, all the B plays. Uh, uh, and it's, it's hard to uh, overstate uh, how important that was, both just as an opportunity to learn and, my, and to have a relationship with Christopher Durang, who's unique. And I loved working on his stuff. I loved it. 
And though I'm not going strictly chronologically, yes. another playwright that you obviously developed a relationship was with Larry Shu. Oh. A name people don't often hear nowadays. People may know the foreigner. I don't think what's his lost square is 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 as well known. Um, how did that come about? Uh, a producer uh, whose name eludes me at the moment, darn, uh, sent me the script. Again, for, for, doing, for Foreigner. For Foreigner, that's yep. correct. And uh, about four or five times in my life, I've read scripts where I was transported and, again, put it down and wanted to start work immediately. Hmm. You know, Six Degrees of Separation, uh, uh, Sister Mary Ignatius, and, uh, and The House of Blue Leaves, certainly, and uh, then The Foreigner. It made me laugh so hard, and I thought... Because, you know, someone sends you a play. Someone you don't know sends you a play. Uh, Jack McQuiggan was his name. I'm so happy I remembered the name of the producer. He's a good man. And he was responsible for keeping that production afloat because it, it was, you know, not it, enduring previews. Great tumultuous laughs. You could feel it. Just as, just as I imagined it when I read it, you know. Uh, had great actors. Uh, it opened. It was dismissed by the New York Times as inconsequential. And then for the next 10 or 12 days, it was like a tomb. The producer had to raise, I think, $60,000 back then to keep it open. He did. And somehow the word of mouth kicked in and it also ran for several years. Well, they worked very hard about word of mouth. I remember seeing The Foreigner mm-hmm. and one of the things they were doing was literally handing out buttons, uh, you know, pins. Yes. Like they were large campaign yes, pins, yes, you know, yes. that you, you know, so you could uh, – I mean I don't know how many people wore them. They were so big. <laughs> but but it's the only show I think I ever remember walking out of getting, getting a gift. <laughs> so they well, were doing whatever they could to right. implant themselves in their mind. But it was – I mean it was a spectacular production. And a great cast, Tony yes. Heald. Yes, yes. In yes. his in his heyday on yes, stage, yes. Um, we, 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 it was a great, great team. But really, the biggest loss is Larry Shu. You know, he passed away in an airplane crash, and uh, mm-hmm. it was a great voice. Uh, you know, even his uh, what what is it, the nerd, the nerd, the nerd. Yeah. You know, is hysterically funny. It's a little topical now what, with the Vietnam War and everything. But but my goodness, I saw it in London. And again, fell out of my seat. The man had the gift for creating comedy on the page. Um, Wenceslas Square was also, uh, you know, it was a very special play. It was very funny, but it was you saw him starting to go deeper. That's why I wanted to ask. Exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I would have very much liked to have seen where he. The, where he might have ended up and, and, and in terms of his artistic development, I think he was just beginning to probe and get deeper and ask harder questions and consider the dark side a little bit. Uh, and uh, But he never lost a sense of humor. That's the thing. He could do that without losing the wonderful, wonderful approach to life. Anyway, he's a, I miss him. You mentioned, of course, House of Blue Leaves, which would be another milestone mm-hmm. in your career. Interesting situation in that it was not a new play. It had been done off Broadway. It had been done, right. you know, in some regional theaters, uh, even college productions. But for many people, it was as if it was a new play. Isn't that nice? What? <laughs> so, yes. so it was your chance to do a revival yes. that was a rediscovery of a play that wasn't that old. It's not like it was from the twenties. Here's the great thing: when I read things like Guys and Dolls, for example or House of Blue Leaves, generally, I haven't read them before. You know, even though I was an English major, Guys and Dolls, for example, I had never seen. 
No, really. Seriously, hmm. Howard. You know, well, you I, say you didn't even see a musical no, until you were no, in college. No. So when someone gave me you know, the script and the score, uh, I read it and listened to it as though it had been written yesterday. It was a, why, should I, why should I think of it as anything but a new piece? You know? And then, of course, once you get into it, you realize all the ramifications of the fact that it was done in the early 50s. Uh, but the same holds true with House of Blue Leaves. Again, it's just one thing leads to another. By coincidence, as a guest artist at Dartmouth College the previous summer, uh, what I forget the year, I did House of Blue Leaves. Mm-hmm. Fell in love with the play. I fell, uh, actually uh, just was just fell in love with the play, period. Cut to The Marriage of Bet and Boo uh, at the public, which went very well. And then cut to uh, Greg Mosier and John Guare sitting down with me for a bite and asking me if I'd like to direct House of Blue Leaves at Lincoln Center. You know, it's like there is a God in those moments because I had fallen in love with the play. I thought I really understood it. And then collaborating with Tony Walton, you know, to help provide the visual impact and, and, and the idea behind it, uh, again, joy. And we managed to present it in a way that I think made it feel fresh because it's not a topical play. You know, it will last. It's about universal and timeless issues, you know. Only connect, as Ian Forster would say, mm-hmm. you know. Only connect. Watching those people struggle to connect. It's a great spectator sport, you know. You had, by all accounts, an, a spectacular cast for yes. that show. John Mahoney was sort of a discovery yes. for, for many people in that. Stockard Channing uh, and Susie Kurtz, perhaps already known to the New York theater community. The years that you were acting, did that give you access and relationship with actors that you were personally able to bring onto productions once you started directing? Occasionally. I, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking in those terms when I was acting with them, but I certainly would remember fondly the people that I had good experiences acting with. Um, it didn't really help inform my choices, my casting choices as a director particularly. Hmm. Um, you know, John Mahoney was an unknown to me. Greg Mosier knew him. And touted from him. Chicago, indeed. And you know, I, I would take I take Greg's opinion seriously. And you know, he came in and he was he was delightful and and so willing. And he had his, the spirit of this this wannabe, you know, this zookeeper who wants to be a great songwriter, you know. And and the others were just magical. I mean, Chris Walken, Ben Stiller's first professional job, you know. Uh, and they were great team players. God, I need team players, you know. I don't have any time for divas, you know. Uh, I, I could just no time. And, and so that is to say people who are willing to pass the ball to each other and to play the intention and to, and to and finally and ultimately to trust me, which is the most important. Since it was not a play from decades earlier and certainly John Guare was around – did your dramaturgical impulses come out? Was there anything that was changed no. in that script? No. No. My dramaturgical impulses come out when there are problems, <laughs> when hmm. stuff doesn't work. It, I was hard-pressed to find anything that wasn't integral to the storytelling. I don't, I don't think we made cuts. If we did, I really don't think we made any. Uh, with Six Degrees, we moved at one or two scenes around a little bit. Uh, but again, that was... That sprang full-blown and finished by the time I read it. Um, no, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, the, 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 the dramaturgical impulses, well, I don't, wouldn't call them that. Uh, you know, in terms of script, uh, no, did very little. Mm-hmm. That, that play was – plus I'd had a chance to live with it the previous summer and uh, I, I, I knew it very well. Um, 
But some of the – listen, some of the ideas for the way we presented it didn't even happen until tech rehearsal, hmm. you know, where, you, where you're in the middle of tech rehearsal and you're waiting and you're looking at the set and you go, you know something? All these wonderful neon signs, you know, wouldn't it be great if we, we started in the dark and presented them rhythmically to the – to handle, you know, to the theme from 2001, da, 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 bowl, bowl, you know, so we, we, if you read John's foreword to the play, he, he portrays Manhattan as the promised land to the people, to the residents of Queens that he knew and that he was writing about. And so I wanted to establish, uh, the immediate neighborhood represented by bar signs and things that you, you associate with Queens and then through the window in the distance, Manhattan, you know, mm-hmm. Oz, the, the promised land. And that was – anyway, I'm, I'm not being coherent. But it, it, uh, yeah, I'm okay. getting it. Good. Good. <laughs> Good. You had several productions in pretty short order at Lincoln Center yeah. Theater. Um, again, now in this case, both true classics. Were they new to you, the front page? Uh, I had read it. OK. I had read it. I hadn't read it in a while. But upon rereading, it was like, okay, when do we start? This is, this is fantastic. And again, ironic – this is interesting because I believe there isn't any production that isn't better the second time around. A year before I did the front page, totally by coincidence, I did a production of it at the Denver Theater Center, Center Theater. And it was a great opportunity to get into the nuts and bolts of the thing and find the rhythms and the – you know, and, and – in, in fact, it, it helped me immeasurably. Uh, can I tell you a quick little story? Sure. One of my more embarrassing moments. Uh, oh, then definitely. This is good. In, in the Denver Center Theater production, uh, 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 I started the show with a loop of, of uh, period music that played while the audience was getting seated on a cassette. It was very good. Set the mood. Uh, when I came to New York and we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, we moved into the theater, and now it's the evening of the invited dress. We had teched the whole show, obviously, but I hadn't given the guy – I wanted to use the same cassette of the pre-show music. So I gave it to the sound guy. He put it in, and at 10 minutes, quarter, quarter to eight, as people are filing in for the invited dress and the music is playing, suddenly the music stops, and you hear on the tape, say, da-da, say, da-da. And you hear my infant daughter going, da, 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 da. I say, say I, I clearly had recorded over it and uh, <laughs> leapt to the sound booth and pulled it out of the machine. But anyway, I don't think anyone noticed. <laughs> yes, so. yes, uh, front, yes, front page. So front yes. page and then anything goes. Yes, yes. Was that new? Yeah. Oh, yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes, yes. And I thought, oh, my God, who is this Cole Porter? I'm an illiterate, Howard. What can I say? No, truly, it was like – Discovering Santa Claus, I suppose, you know, listening to – I mean obviously I I had heard some of the songs. That was a huge dramaturgical project, huge. The original – the book that I had – was submitted to me by John Weidman and Tim Krause was uh, based on the uh, 34 and 62 versions of the show. And so I, I familiarized myself with both those. And then we began a process of meeting several times a week for about a year and going through it and challenging it and identifying which scenes didn't work, which scenes were silly and not seriously silly, which to me is an important distinction, you know, and, 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 and also what, what would happen if we took this song, which is originally intended for Hope Harcourt, and gave it to Evelyn Oakley, the gypsy in me, you know, because then we'll have the moment where the worm turns and he reveals himself to be truly a passionate lover. You know, now Tony Heald did that you know, perfectly. And all of a sudden you feel smart for having that idea, you know. Uh, um, 
but much, much writing and rewriting with two great collaborators. Well, and it, so it wasn't certainly a straight revival. Some people now use the term revisal. Right. right um, you right. really were reworking the material for a modern audience. Yes. It was a new production of an old show as opposed to revival or revisal. A new production of an old show. And, and uh, yeah, and we treated it like a new show, you know. You fold in Eddie Strauss's brilliant notion for the music. I mean, talk about getting a job. He, he came into me and and pitched that we do it with a swing band, you know, 18 pieces, a single violin, uh, and then proceeded to play me a swing band orchestrations of numbers that had nothing to do with Cole Porter and hummed along the melodies in the show. And I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, and then, and so it, so it begins, you know, uh, the whole process. We had a wonderful portrait of Cole Porter that we thought we were going to use in the opening of the show, and somehow it didn't fit. Somehow there was other scenery in the way. or So we ended up giving him a curtain call at the end of the show, and I used his voice because Eddie played for me a scratchy old recording of Cole Porter singing... Uh, in old ten days, a glimpse of you know, we segued that into the orchestra. That was a wonderfully uh, uh, exciting time. The mm -hmm. year, year and a half we spent uh, pre-production on that. Now it's interesting. Not to mention Patty Lapone. Not to mention. Well, <laughs> that, again, that whole cast was oh, was so terrific. Perfect. Perfect. In the case of anything goes, you reinvented the show, um, and. Your version of the show has pretty much become now the standard version that's produced. Mm -hmm. We're going to see it revived that's this right. year. Yes. Lend me a tenor. You did the original Broadway production. Mm -hmm. It's in revival right now. Mm -hmm. What is it like on pieces that you had struck such a strong hand in the creation of to now be seeing revivals of things that you put your imprint on? It's uh, It makes you feel older. Uh, that's one. Um, and it's a testament to the material. I mean, you know, I think I think it's great that another generation or a newer generation will get a chance to see Lend Me a Tenor on stage, you know. Uh, uh, my reaction to it really depends on the civility of the author and the uh, and the, the current director. What do I mean by that? When Walter, Bobby, and Chris Durang decided to do a new production of The Marriage of uh, Bette and Boo, they called just to say, just wanted to let you know. I'll tell you... Uh, that's all. It was not required. It was just the right thing to do. So I didn't read about it in the paper. When something like that happens, I have nothing but best wishes uh, 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 for, for the success because why not? I love both those guys and they did the civil thing. You know, when I find out about a, a revival of something that I did in the paper, uh, I'm, not, I'm not as charitably inclined, you know? Do you ever have a desire – to go back, you said doing a second production can be helpful, but right. you were talking about you'd done a regional production, you'd done a college, you were a right. visitor at Dartmouth when you right. first did Blue Leaves. Right. Do you ever have a desire now, 20 years on, from some of these shows to do them again? No. Not no. at all? No. No, uh, uh, particularly the ones that I'm really happy with. If I walk away from a production and I think, oh, if only I had done this, it would have been the difference between success and failure, I might. But generally... You know, it's a closed book and moving forward, you know. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, now, again, relationships with authors, John Guare, Six Degrees of Separation, yeah. a new play. Yeah. This time, it wasn't a fixed text. Right. Right. Um, what was the development of that play? Does, does John write them 
finished or is John somebody who comes in and, and works and develops it with the cast and develops with the director? John is very open to developing uh, things with the cast and with with the director. Six Degrees was pretty much finished when, it, when, when I read it. Honestly, we changed very little. It was so beautifully constructed and so beautifully written. The big challenge with Six Degrees was how to present it to an audience so that it had the same effect on the audience as it had on me when I read it. Hmm. Okay? Now, that's a rhythmic thing and a visual thing. When you're reading a play like Six Degrees, which has, I don't know, 28 scenes or something, that's the, the first third of which take place in a house... And then burst to various other places, uh, Central Park, a rolling, r- a roller rink, uh, 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 all over, you know, uh, chases. I mean, it's just uh, um, where it becomes more fragmented and, and more, not abstract, just fragmented in the, in the manner of a movie. How do you do that, you know? Uh, we ended up discovering the key, and I say we, I'm talking about Tony Walton and myself. When I, said, when I sat down with Tony, I said, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? Uh, and I kept sort of gravitating to a conventional house with walls and conventional entrances and exits. He said, yes, 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 but, but the second half of the play, that won't work for us in the second half of the play. And again, I wanted the play to unfold as quickly as it takes for you to turn the page to get to the next one because I wanted the effect of the play to be as though 20 people ran into a room at the same time and said to you, Howard, do we have a story to tell you? Here, me, you, who wants to go first? That urgency, that slight chaos, you know, but without being chaotic, yes? So uh, after many conversations, we got to the point where I realized that we could do this with two sofas and the Kandinsky revolving above the sofas and also, if I put the actors in the front row, if, if they would give me the front row and I could put the actors in the front row, they could enter by standing up. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have to have walk, 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 speak. Or spe- you wouldn't have that rhythm. By having limbo spaces above and below through a scrim, you could have people appear and disappear like a light switch. So I had... And I'm telling you, one of the happiest days of my professional life was walking through Central Park, playing the, the, the after I'd finished with Tony, going through the play scene by scene and realizing that this scheme would support the play at every step of the way. So exciting. <laughs> we started this yes. conversation about literary work. And yes. now you've already twice mentioned Tony Walton. Yes. How much for you... Does the visual, the scenic solution have to come? Because it seems very important. I've, I've learned to appreciate the importance of it over the years because I think each director is informed by the way they begin directing. I began directing by orchestrating scenes between two or more characters. That's what I love. I could, I could not care less about the set, hmm. honestly, and, or, you know, or the clothes. It was like the, you know, the intention of this line and the, the, you know, the, the, the acting, the acting. Hmm. And uh, with Tony, I grew to learn how incredibly significant the visual aspect of, uh, the, visual aspect of the production is uh, to, 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 to help bring the play to life, but to facilitate the getting from point A to point B which is very mundane, but it's critically important. You know, ask any director about musicals, certainly, and they'll say transitions, transitions, you know, so that there's music and rhythm and surprise, and we're never waiting for it. Well, in Six Degrees, I never wanted to wait for actors. Hmm. I wanted to be able to have the transitions occur the way a light switch goes on and off. And so 
Uh, so yes, with Tony, uh, he always helped me learn more about the visual aspect, and he was so open to my ideas. And pretty soon, I got to enjoy participating in the, cre- the, the creation of the visual aspect. Hmm. I believe you said a little bit ago that um, Guys and Dolls was new to you. When you yes, 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 um, yes. So when you approached that revival, yes. um, which was ultimately such a landmark revival of, of that show, yeah. um, what were your reference points? Did you go back and research? Did you go and look at the film? Did you yeah. listen to the uh, yes. earlier cast albums? I did as much as I I did as much as I could. Let me just say this that the most important thing to me in any of these productions is the transmission of joy of some sort. Let me just say which has a lot which has to do with all of these things because without that, you know, or some sort of ecstatic experience, you know. What do I mean by that? In Temple when I was a kid and I'm going to go back to answer your question if I can remember it. it but because this is important. When I went to synagogue, the happiest moments was at the end of the service, A because it was the end of the service, but B because everyone stood up and sang and it was ecstatic. We sang and it was joyous. Um I've always you know, I've always wanted my productions to feel uh, to, to, to perform the same function as going to a good service would. Now, I'm not comparing, you know, faith in God with the theater, but you know what? Sometimes I think it's more powerful. The, well, the theater, what's the 11 you know? o'clock number of Guys and Dolls? You That's can right. argue, but it might right. be Sit Down, You're Rocking the That's Boat, right. which has That's right. That's right. has that That's right. fervor. In Listen, it. With, with Guys and Dolls, to answer your question, I went back and researched it as much as possible. I also knew that it was that it was written to be a series of alternating in one and full stage scenes. In one, full stage. In one. That was woven into the fabric of it. And I thought, of course, okay, how are we going to make this different? Not unlike how we were going to make the comedy tonight and form different from the Jerry Robbins version. You know, it's a challenge. Uh, and I tried and tried and tried, and I spoke with Cy Fuhrer, uh, who was one of the original producers and, in fact, had directed productions. He says, don't do it, kid. Don't do it. The play will bite you in the you-know-what. Don't do it. You know, and he was right. So the next step was accidentally coming upon a, a bunch of Tony Walton painted illustrations at his home in Sag Harbor. And I said, Tony, that's what the set needs to look like. Hmm. Those colors. The, just go with that. And we got a, and we, we found a wonderful way to bleed through scrims. And so visually it was a taste treat because one of my – look, I remember the first time I saw a, a scrim dissolve, you know, in the glass menagerie and in Do I Hear a Waltz. You know, I mean, to me that always remains – magical. Hmm. So I love scrims. I love using them cleverly. But that was that was the beginning of the visual presentation of that show. And then uh, Well William Ivy Long's costumes oh were as much a part of the scenery in a Listen, way. He, because you talk about color, you talk I mean I would use him every time if I if I had the total freedom to do that. We've done about thirty shows together. He's brilliant. There isn't anything that he can't do, anything. And even though he's known for, you know, glitz, I mean, one, part of his reputation is about glitz and sequins and sparkles. The man designs for the character and for the play. And here we had a marriage of, I wanted, yes, I wanted the costumes to be as bold in color as the set was. And just let's just make sure they don't clash, boys, and we'll be swell. And that was how we started. And then many many sketches and paintings and renderings later, 
that's what we uh, what we came up with. But in the case of Guys and Dolls, yes, that was a show that wasn't being rewritten or restructured. No, it wasn't. No, you it know, wasn't. It certainly was a different experience than anything goes. I, I, that's correct. I knew I was look. I knew I was in. in I, I knew that this occupied a very special place in theater goers' hearts. When after it was announced that I would be directing, I remember many people coming up to me and saying. Guys and Dolls, it's my favorite show, which is code for don't screw it up. Very simple. And, you know, it was a difficult, difficult preview period. Very hard. Uh, we were not good first preview. Uh, I had miscast a young woman who was a friend. I didn't know it at the time. It was causing the, a central relationship to not work. I didn't know it until two weeks into previews when I finally got it. And it was only in the last two weeks of previews that I made – I work very hard in previews on changes. I mean I think most good directors do. It's when you go from theoretical to real, you know, rehearsal room to reality. And, you know, uh, uh, it was not until I made the casting switch that I could address a lot of other things that had sort of not been given proper attention. I had a great, great core. That was the Sarah character. That's that correct. Change, that's, right. that's right. And uh, that's exactly right. It was the Sarah character. And Chris Chadman, you know, who is no longer with us. You know, I found him through an audition. He auditioned for me with several numbers. Right. Chris was, was the, the choreographer. Chris Chadman was the yeah. choreographer, right. And the thing that won me over was his seven-and-a-half-minute presentation of Runyon Land, which is the opening sort of atmospheric number uh, that Michael Kidd had done originally in the, in, the, in the original production. And I loved it. Well, wasn't it awkward to find out in previews that the seven-and-a-half-minute number was killing us? Because we were devoting seven and a half precious minutes of stage time to characters that were not the main characters. So I cut it. I just had to cut it. I started with the fugue for Tin Horns and he said, Jerry, let me let me go into a rehearsal room. I can make this better. And, you know, God bless my collaborators. That's all I can say. The Tony Waltons and the Chris Chadmans and the William Ivy Longs. He went down in rehearsal. For five days we did the show without any Runyon Land. He showed me a three and a half minute version of it that was perfect. And now it was back in the show. So that's just how these things happen. You just A lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes. I skipped over a very important yes. show, but uh, you, you just made reference to wanting to give people the ecstatic experience. Right. Was Assassins at Playwrights Horizons meant to give people an ecstatic experience or was that a whole different animal? It was a whole different animal. And when I say ecstatic experience, I'm, I'm not talking about – laughs necessarily. I'm talking about, uh, you know, an ecstatic experience of the mind. You know, you see a Tom Stoppard play and your, you know, your brain and, and your heart as well are just, you know, you know, I, I have headaches when I leave those pieces because they're so complex. Assassins, I think Assassins was an examination of the dark side uh, of, uh, you know, our, our, uh, of our society, the fact that, you know, we, we tend to make our president's father figures and then uh, the twisted amongst us, you know, are not satisfied that the father is doing what the father should be doing and actually take, go so far as to attempt to kill them. Um, you know, why did I do it? I did it because it was fascinating. It was John Weidman and Steve Sondheim. And I loved their company and I loved the – and we thought we could create a show that would that theater, that would give theater goers some sort of an ecstatic experience. I don't, you know, again, it's not a comedy. You know, it's, it's – you know, even revulsion, I suppose, and that may be too strong. Is well, Not a lot of people are going to go to the theater to live with um, 
a group of presidential assassins and would-be assassins. That's what I found out. Did it diminish my joy in working on it? Not one bit. Mm. I'm counting quickly here. Yes. But if I'm right, you have done five shows with Nathan Lane? Uh, we, he did the re- original uh, uh, reading of Assassins, so that doesn't count. But let's see. We did Laughter on the 23rd Floor, uh, Forum, Guys and Dolls, and Dolls, Forum, right. Man Who Came to Dinner, That's right, and, Adam's uh, and currently Adam's Family. That's right. What is the working relationship for you with Nathan? Because that's, that's an extended right. period of time, certainly with Guys and Dolls in 92 right. and then you know, just this year with Adam's Family. His career has grown. Your career has grown. What's, what's the, what the connection? He – if I were a conductor and he was my concert master – and could play anything on his instrument that I wanted to make the music sound better, he could do it. With a minimum of drama, with a minimum of wasted time, he is a master of his craft, uh, and he inspires me. He inspires me. He, he, you know, if I come up with an idea for him, he'll execute it better than I could ever have imagined it, or, and, and, or, and by attempting to execute it, will reveal whether it's a good idea or not. You know, if Nathan can't make it work, then my idea was no good. He is also brilliant enough to come back with, well, what if, if I don't, what if I don't do this, but I do this? How about this? Would that, I mean, he and I, I can't tell you the conversations we had and funny thing happened on the way to the forum. In the opening number, uh, he comes out and he sings the opening of comedy tonight. Tomorrow, comedy tonight. And he gestures to the curtain. And my premise was that this was a rep company of actors who did comedies and tragedies on alternate nights and they'd all gotten confused and thought they were putting on a tragedy that night so when the curtain rose on his tragedy tomorrow comedy tonight the curtain went up and they they were in Robbie Marshall staged eight seconds of Medea that you could die for boom da 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 fantastically dramatic melodramatic music Nathan and then the curtain just came down and Nathan stood there and the conversations we had about how to get no, not three laughs, four, four good ones. Well, we're getting, we're getting. If you hold there, when the when the curtain comes down, and you don't move. That's going to get a laugh, because we're going to give the audience the pleasure of imagining what we're thinking. He has that gift. Great comic actors know when not to do anything, so that you, as audience, become hysterical, imagining what's going on in their heads. Yes. So if he doesn't do anything on that curtain, you're going to laugh. Then if he goes, and then if he looks to the audience, takes a breath as though he's going to say something and then goes back and looks again, he's going to get another laugh. Then if he, in embarrassment, right, the situ- it's always grounded in the situation, Howard, you know, if in embarrassment he, he laughs a little bit nervously, he's going to get another laugh. But Nathan, you, we need to hear the laugh a little bit. I know you're smiling, but if we hear it, it'll get a bigger laugh. <laughs> a nervous, sort of embarrassed sound. And so that, that's the back and forth that I enjoy with him the way I enjoy it with no one else. Hmm. He's the actor I would have hoped to have been if I had continued as an, as an actor. Hmm. Simple. Now, I have skipped over many shows Uh-oh. and our time is limited. I want to ask you about one more, which is coming up, the Randy Newman show. Oh, yes. Now, the music of Randy Newman, people know from film because he's written scores and songs for so many movies. There have been prior attempts 
to make musicals out of his existing songs. There was Faust, which he wrote for the stage, which ultimately did not end up here in New York. What what is the nature of Harps and Angels and where 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 is it headed? It's uh, the nature of it is a musical review, not unlike Smokey Joe's in that there will not be any book. Uh, it will be a cycle of songs. You know. Now, again, I was a relative stranger. I knew his famous songs. But when Jack Vertel suggested this show to me, I, w- I really immersed myself in Randy Newman music. Spectacular songs. And we, we, what we're trying to do is uh, – the show is called Harps and Angels. It's going to perform at the taper. And if it goes well, who knows? Um, it, it, it could be subtitled Randy Newman's America you know, or Randy Newman – Without being biographical, the early years and the later years, you know, as a rock star and as, a, as an older guy who is a parent. He, he has such insight into those experiences. He's lived them. And as Jack points out, he's one of the few songwriters who write to where they are at that moment in their life, you know, in his adolescence. He wrote – you know, as he gets older, he, he seems to reinvestigate himself. And so, so while it's not biographical at all, uh, it's – Hopefully, we're going to present it in a way so that it has theatrical viability, that it helps you, you know, that it provides some sort of an ecstatic experience. I love mm-hmm. the music. The lyrics are so smart. And we're in the, mid- we're in the midst of, you know, that's, it's doing that and like working on uh, uh, Smokey Joe's, which are non-scripted shows, uh, is a bit like safe cracking. You turn one notch and then you get it right and you go the other way and, until you finally hear the click. And it's, it's very slow. But... Uh, but I'm excited. I have a great cast, and Randy Newman himself is a joy to collaborate. Well, with. Well, that was my question. Yeah. How how involved is he in the production? He's, he's involved. He well, he 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 he's left us alone in terms of creating the song order and the way I'd like to do them. Uh, he's very he's been very involved in casting. Um, you know, uh, uh, for all his self-deprecating humor, he's got a very keen keen sense of the way he wants the music to sound. And if I have an idea about doing the music differently than he's used to hearing it, he is open enough to listen to it if there's an idea behind it. So that part has been joy. So we go in rehearsal in October. <laughs> well, with that, Jerry Zachs, we've spent an hour. We haven't covered everything I wish we could have, but I want to say thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. My pleasure. Thanks for making it fun, Howard. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and also follow me on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing and look for our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, we hope we'll see you at the theater.